I'll use this one. Uh, so welcome this morning. Glad you're here from Mars Hill, where we like to have technical difficulties, where we like to uh, work and roll with the punches, as we have been doing for so many weeks. If you're a guest with us, we don't normally meet in this space. We normally meet downstairs. Uh, we decided we wanted to rem remind ourselves exactly what the book of Acts was all about, so we set fire to the floor downstairs so that we could meet in the upper room. That joke's getting old, but that's where we're at in the text. They're in the upper room as they meet and as they gather. And uh, we're, we're in our study in Acts here, and we're going to be in verses 15 down to 20. And so I want to read these to us, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to explore this a little bit further. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers with a faulty microphone, and the company of the persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be filled, fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit beforehand, which spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke provides an aside in verse 18. Now, this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, with the wages of his wickedness, and Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And then verse 20. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So what we're seeing in these verses as we begin to get into this particular text, just to give some context, is after Jesus' ascension, the disciples do exactly what they're told. They return to the upper room in obedience, just like Jesus told them at the end of the Gospel of Luke, just like he says at the beginning of Acts, return to Jerusalem, stop going and coming is what he says, go back to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, and they're doing just that. And they're in the upper room. We, we saw last week they're united in prayer together in the upper room. And now Peter begins to stand up and they begin to make some decisions. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so I have no idea where I was, but they are between the ascension of Jesus and the descension of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And all that we're seeing here are, are indications of our characteristics of this earliest gathering of believers, And it's remarkable some of the things that they do in these few verses before the Holy Spirit even comes. They're being faithful to obey the commands of Jesus. They go back to the upper room. They're praying together. They're united. They're making together here, and they're making these decisions based on rooted in the word. That's going to be one of the most remarkable things here that we see in what Peter does. And so what we see in this text, what begins to happen is Peter stands up and, and takes a leadership role which is remarkable considering Peter's past and what he's done and betraying Jesus himself. And then he, he sets a pretty astounding example for them, for us, in, in particularly in what and how he views the Scriptures and how he makes decisions rooted in the, the Scriptures, how they make decisions rooted in the Scriptures, how we can use the Scriptures, look to the Scriptures, root ourselves in the Scriptures, and then, it's subtle in the text, but Luke provides us the gospel because he presents two ways of living. The way of these disciples, 
and then the way of Judas. And so those are our three points this morning. What we're going to see first is Peter's leadership role that he takes. So what's immediately clear, Luke makes it clear, in those days. That's a transitional phrase. You'll see that a couple of different times in in the book of Acts. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And then, over the parenthetical there, it says, and he addressed them as brothers. What we see that's immediately obvious is, is Peter stands up and he's taking a leadership role. And it indicates this a little bit back in verse 13. We, and Jack pointed this out last week. When they give the list of the apostles, it says Peter and John, James and Andrew. That's, that's unique in that the, the brothers are separated. Peter and Andrew, James and John. It, 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 it really prioritizes here. We, we begin to see roles taking place just even in the way that Luke describes that in verse 13. And now we see it. It actually takes place. Peter is taking a leadership role in this gathering of believers. He's... He's taking, he's taking a step forward. He's standing up. He's beginning to speak. And it's important for us to remember in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, what Jesus said to Peter. What he said to Peter before his betrayal. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, what does he say? strengthen the brothers. What does Peter immediately say when he stands up among this crowd? Brothers. He addresses them exactly how Jesus commanded him to do. Go and strengthen them. Go and encourage them. Strengthen them with what? And we'll see, he strengthens them with the word. Now what's interesting here is he's doing exactly what Jesus told him he should do and would do, and how he addresses them when he stands up, he, it says he stands up among the brothers and he addresses them as brothers. And we need to understand, and the context makes it clear, that, that when he uses this word brothers, this does not mean men only. This is not limited only to the men in the room. Just a few verses before this, we already know there are men in the room and there are women in the room. There are all sorts of different people from different backgrounds in the room. And so what's Peter doing when he calls them brothers? This begins to be a word that's used especially throughout Acts to refer to the family of God, the believers, the community of faith. He's addressing the family. Something's changed in them as a result of the work of Christ. They're no longer this this completely separated group of individuals. They are now a family. They are now united together as one because of the work of Jesus, and Peter acknowledges that. Family, brothers and sisters, this would be another way that we could interpret this. Brothers and sisters, he says here, when he stands up among them. In other words, they aren't just a social gathering. They're family. They're dependent on one another. They love one another. They care for one another. They're united together as family. That changes everything when we begin to recognize that you and I are not some gathering, social gathering of a bunch of individuals, but we are brothers and sisters united in Jesus Christ. That means that you and I are family. That means we don't just walk away from one another when we disagree, when we have disagreements, when we have differences. That means we actually press in further. We may not like each other in that moment, but we press in further and we serve and love and seek to understand one another. And Peter's beginning to model this. And I said, all of this is pretty remarkable when you consider who is doing this, that it's Peter. 
Peter, the one who said, when Jesus said those words, Simon, Simon, Satan's demanded to sift you, and, but I've prayed for you. When you return again, strengthen brothers. Immediately after this, Peter says to Jesus, they may all fall away, but I will never. They may betray you, but I will never do it. He's comparing himself and he's elevating himself above everyone else. They may, they may, they may. But I would never, I would never do that, Jesus. I would never do that. And then what happens? Immediately after this, Jesus is betrayed. And that night, when he's standing before the chief priests, we're told that Peter three times denied Jesus. What's interesting is when you study the Gospel of John, we pointed this out when we studied the Gospel of John, that he did this over a charcoal fire. Why does John point out over a charcoal fire? Why is that significant? Why do we need to know that, that it was over a charcoal fire that Peter there denied Jesus three different times? Because at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus, the, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared after his resurrection to multiple people, and the first person he appeared to was Peter. And in, at the end of the Gospel of John, when he appeared to Peter, it was on the shores of a beach in the Sea of Galilee, and Peter sees him, jumps out of the boat, comes to him, and Jesus is preparing, has prepared a meal of fish over a charcoal fire, where he then begins to ask Peter, and you remember he asked him three times, do you love me? But the very first time he asked him, he says, do you love me more than these? In other words, he's reminding Peter of that confession. They may fail you. I will not. I love you more than they do. And what does Jesus do in the very first question he asks him? Do you love me more than these? How's that going for you, Peter? He reminds Peter. He's not simply trying to humiliate Peter, and that's important. He's trying to remind Peter of his confession. And in making that confession, I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I did not love you the way that I, sh I was called to, supposed to, or even lived up to my own expectations. In doing that, he's reminding Peter not only of his own sin, but the fact that Jesus is standing there right before him, receiving him back. He's showing extraordinary grace. And it's because of that grace that Peter then now stands up and acts as a servant, interpreting the scriptures pointing them to Jesus, not himself. I was reading this morning in, in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius, in Cornelius' house, when Cornelius bows down before Peter, and it says in the text, worships him because he's come to his house and he's heard the, the Holy Spirit or God tell him to, to call for Peter and Peter comes to his house and it says Cornelius bowed down before him and Peter wouldn't let him do it. Get up, get up. I am just a man just like you. I'm, I'm, I'm imperfect. I'm not the Savior that you should be worshiping. There is another. And so Peter's life has changed, and he stands up in their midst and begins to take a servant leadership role before this, these brothers and sisters and this family. But what he does is important, but how he does it and what he says and how he interprets the Scriptures is really, it's eye-opening. When we see here this second point, Peter sets an example, particularly in decision-making rooted in the Word, the language of the text, everything here is persuasive speech. Peter is trying to persuade this family, the brothers and sisters, to do something, particularly to replace Judas. Now, before we go too far down the road of this text and, and our points this morning, it's important for us to acknowledge 
there are some that think that what's happening here, this replacing of Judas, was actually a mistake, that Peter should not have done this and that the disciples should not have done this, that they should have waited and later Paul was the intended one to be replaced or replace Judas. But everything in the text is positive. I recognize that some might hold to that position, but I would disagree with that because everything in the text is positive. There's nothing that's condemning here. Everything they're doing is rooted in prayer, bathed in prayer, rooted in the word, seeking God's leadership. We'll see next week when they make this decision. They say, God, you alone know the hearts of man. We don't know the hearts of man. We don't know which one you have chosen to replace, but we act in faith and we ask you to show us to act, to do. And then they act. And in our actions, in their actions, they trust God to reveal. So everything in this text I think, is positive in affirming and showing us how they go about making this decision. And how do they do this? The language of the text is persuasive, but what does Peter appeal to? He doesn't just appeal to common sense or what we might call general revelation. He doesn't just appeal to what he, it makes sense and, and, and clear from the context of the circumstances and situation. He doesn't just appeal to his feelings. He doesn't just appeal to what he thinks is right. He takes his common sense and he appeals to Scripture. He sifts general revelation through special revelation. He sifts his common sense through the Word of God. He roots the decisions that they're about to make in the Word. And that is telling. That is instructive for us. That is helpful for us to see how he makes this decision, how they make this decision together. What do I mean by common sense that he could have appealed to rather than the Scriptures? Well, well first, common sense, there, are 12, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples. And Jesus even said multiple times to those 12 disciples that in the kingdom to come, you will, you will receive honor as rulers over 12 kingdoms in the kingdom to come. So logically, common sense, reason says there's 12, there was 12, there's going to be 12. We're down a man. We're only, we only have 11. We need to appoint another, a 12th person to stand in the gap. So that's one way that he could have appealed to common sense. Another way he could have appealed to common sense or general revelation or what was understood and known at the time was also the number of a Sanhedrin. Luke gives us this number here. He says the company of persons was in all about 120, and that's important for us. It's a general number. He's, he's approximating. He says about 120, but why 120? Why not about 130 or 125 or 124? Why, why did he approximate at 120? Because a common Sanhedrin or community council would have been ten, one, one leader council member to 10 people. So if there's 120, then there should be 12 leaders. Does that make sense? If there's 12 leaders, there's supposed to be 10 people per those 12 leaders. There's 120. So, so just in, in a common community council known as a Sanhedrin, there should have been 12 leaders. But again, they're down a man. So we should appoint a 12th. But that's not what Peter appeals to. He doesn't appeal to logic or rationale or reason, though those things are there. He doesn't appeal to common sense. He doesn't appeal to, to general revelation. He doesn't appeal to the things he could have easily made a decision based on. Not to say those things are discounted. 
Not to say those things are unimportant. He's free to do those things, just as we are. Instead, he brings that common sense, that general revelation, and he sifts it through the Word. He roots it in the Word. He takes them, this community, to the Word to make sure that their common sense is aligned under the authority, the will, and the Word of God. That is so instructive for us. How often do you and I make decisions simply because, just without any thought for God's word, God's will, God's authority? And yet that's what Peter is doing here. This is pretty interesting here. We'll see some implications of this in just a second. So he doesn't really rely merely on common sense. He brings common sense to Scripture. And as we see, they're praying together. They're going to pray again together. So there's prayer involved. This prayer is in community. So you have the community of believers that's also giving wisdom in this moment. We have the prayer before God. You have the word. You have all the ingredients for wise biblical decision making. And all of this is happening for them before the Holy Spirit descends. We have all of those ingredients plus the Holy Spirit residing within us to affirm, confirm, lead, direct, nudge us in the Word and in prayer and in community together. How often are any of those pieces of ingredients a part of your decision-making, my decision-making? How often do we appeal to the Holy Spirit to instruct us from His Word, to open our eyes to the wondrous things that are here? How often do we actually go to the Word looking for wisdom, looking for counsel, submitting ourselves to the authority of God? How often do we do that in the context of prayer, not just individualistic prayer, but communal prayer, prayer together with one another? How often do we consult the wisdom of the counsel of many, as Proverbs says, the wisdom of our family, faith family, to make the decisions that we make in our lives. This is convicting, if we're honest. This is convicting to me. If you're awake, then it ought to be convicting to you. This is a challenge to us in this biblical decision-making that they're making here. So what do I mean? They, they appealed to common sense. They could have. Instead, they appealed to Scripture. Let's see what Peter does here. At the end of Luke chapter 24, at the end of Luke, in the, in 24, another microphone going out. I'm holding this cable so tight right now because I feel like it's, it's me. It's not you. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, Jesus appears to a couple of disciples on the, on the way to the road, on the road to Emmaus. And it says there that he interpreted the Scriptures to them, a beginning with Moses and all the prophets going to the Old Testament. Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So he took these two disciples and he took them back to Moses and he took them back to the prophets. He took them to the Old Testament and he said, look, here, there I am, there I am, there I am. That's pointing to me. That story about David and Goliath that you thought was about you and conquering your little giants in the world. No, David was the champion put forth by the people as a representative to conquer the greatest giant ever known and he did, and in conquering that giant, he defeated the greatest enemy, the Philistines, that the people at that time had ever faced. This is pointing to me. Jesus did this all along through, the, through Moses and the prophets through the Old Testament. Peter is now following in the footsteps of Jesus. He does exactly what Jesus did. And there are many historical accounts that say from that moment, the, the moment on the road of, to Emmaus, up to this 
moment where the Spirit descends, there's 50 days that there, are, are, there were attempts by the earliest believers to make lists from the Old Testament of all the verses and all the places and all the ways that those are actually prophecies about the Messiah, prophecies about Jesus himself. And Peter is doing that. He takes them and he quotes two verses from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And in doing it, he's taking them back and saying, brothers and sisters, don't you see? Don't you see this is about Jesus? This also, if the Old Testament tells us about the Messiah and tells us about Jesus, then it simultaneously tells us about the enemies of God. If it tells us about Jesus and the Messiah and it tells us the life that's offered in him, then it also simultaneously tells us about the enemies of God and the death that is offered if we reject Jesus. And Peter is doing that here. He's following in Jesus' footsteps. In Psalm 69, in both of these psalms, they're about, in Psalm 69 and 109, both of these psalms are about the suffering servant of God. Suffering innocently at the hands of his enemies. And they both pivot mid-psalm to prayers that about the enemies, prayers that, that God would bring his wrath and his judgment on the enemies. And in making this decision about Judas, Peter roots the decision in the word, and he takes him to Psalm 69. Listen to this. Let's see if it sounds familiar. The waters come up to my neck. I'd sink deep in mire. I'm, we- I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. That's verse 4. Verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then the psalm turns towards addressing the enemies of, of this servant. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. That's what he quotes here in verse 20. May his camp be desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. So in this psalm, Peter sees both a foreshadowing, a painting, a picture, a portrait pointing with an arrow to Jesus, but also an arrow pointing to the enemies, those who reject Jesus, particularly Judas. May his camp be desolate. So so he's seeing in both directions, this text is pointing us to Jesus, and it's giving us wisdom on what we need to do in this moment. The other text, Psalm 109. In Psalm 109, it's, it's almost identical, and it recounts the suffering servant of God, and hear what it says. He, he cries out, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Every one of the gospel writers say that Jesus was innocent. They go out of their way to show us how Jesus was innocent and how everyone accused him of, of these accusations, but, but, but it was deceit, it was lying, it was, it was untrue that, that he was innocent from beginning to end. They could find nothing wrong with him. John goes out of his way to really emphasize that. And like Psalm 69, the psalmist says, appoint a wicked man against him, against the accuser. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. May his days be few, may another take his office. So again, Peter sees in these verses a reference to Jesus and a reference to those who would reject him. So what, what does this tell us? What are 
What are some implications for us of this text? What, what do we learn here? First and foremost, I think this is so important for us. They are not willing to take a single step apart from the authority of They're not willing to take a single step apart from God's will, God's word. They don't want to go a single step beyond what God would will, God would determine, God desires for them. They want to be completely obedient. They want to be completely aligned, completely submitted to him, to his will, to his authority. And this is, this is telling throughout the text. We see it throughout the text. They, they, are, they want to be in lockstep with Jesus. They want to be in lockstep with the Word of God. They want to be, they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. They want to wait on Him and do exactly what the Holy Spirit would lead them to do. They don't want to go beyond that into their own common sense, even though they're free to make that decision. Even though you and I are free to make decisions based on general revelation, we have brains, God gave them to us for a reason, we can make these decisions about life and circumstances that we, we have, but they want to ensure that their common sense thinking, that their feelings, that their rational thought is aligned to the Word. They bring their feelings, their common sense, their thinking to the Word to understand what God has already revealed. They take general revelation... God's creation, that we can understand Him, they take that and they sift it through special revelation through His Word. How many times do we go about mindlessly making decisions without a single thought or care for what God has already revealed in His Word? For what God would have us do, have us say, where He would have us go? How many times do we make decisions without a single thought for what Jesus would have us do or, or a single thought for where the Spirit would have us go? A second implication of what they're doing here is they see the Scriptures. I think this is also so important for us. They see the Scriptures as God's very Word, applicable to life both then and now. Peter is standing in Acts chapter 1 making these statements, basing his decisions in life on an Old Testament text. We stand here now making decisions based on what some would say outdated texts. Those are so old, those are, they have no relevance for our lives. That's not what Peter thinks. That's not what Jesus led them to understand, and that's not how Peter makes decisions and these disciples are making decisions now. They see the word as applicable both then and now. They see them as important and authoritative for life here and now. Now, listen to what Peter calls the Word, how they talk about the Word in this text. He calls it first Scripture. The, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Scripture. The, the word in the Greek is graphe, and it always is used to refer to the written commandments of God. It's not always used. It, it's, when it's used about God's Word, it's, it's used in that way. Written commandments of God. So he's calling this Old Testament, these words, these writings, the Psalms, God's very word, God's very instruction, God's very breath, God's very authority. He sees the, the, the scriptures as authoritative. And then he says, in those days, Peter said among, them, among the brothers, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that's coming. So in other words, what he sees in the Old Testament and the scriptures as, is God's very word spoken or inspired by the Spirit. And then he says something also startling, an accusation that's often used against the, the Word of God, the Bible. He says, by the mouth of David concerning 
Judas by the mouth of David. The Spirit spoke, the Spirit inspired by the mouth of a fallen man. Those two things, the supernatural work and God's working supernaturally through men. And he sees it as all relevant, both then and now. Peter is saying everything that our common secular culture would disagree with about the Word. In fact, many of us in this room might even question about the Word. He's referring to the Bible as God's very Word, inspired by the Spirit, even though it was spoken through fallen man, and relevant and applicable to our lives here and now. Not to be discounted, not to be ignored, but to be submitted to. That's what they're doing here. They're submitting to the authority of the Word. They're submitting to the Scriptures. That's telling and, again, convicting for our lives. They see His Word as authoritative. They see it as inspired by the Spirit. Therefore, if it's inspired by the Spirit and it's it's revealed by God, then it's true and trustworthy. If God is the one who is the one who wrote the word, inspired the word by the Spirit, and He's going to reveal Himself, He's going to do so reliably. He's going to do so in a true and trustworthy manner. He desires to be known. And so if He's going to reveal Himself, He's going to do so true and trustworthy. We can trust this word that we have, and Peter acknowledges, though it's written through David, through fallen men. God is supernaturally working using the personalities, the people, the, the, the language, the cultures. He's supernaturally working to write, to record these words for us. And here is also what is most telling. And this third implication is when Peter sees the word, when he looks to the Old Testament, when he looks to the word, he looks for Jesus. He looks for Jesus. He doesn't just go to the Word for some story that he thinks is about himself, some good little moral tale from the Old Testament that tells him good things about how he's supposed to live. No, he looks in the Old Testament for Jesus and for the life that's revealed in Jesus and the death that is revealed for those who reject Jesus. This is... This is so startling and shocking. These, these verses are verses we would normally, if we're honest, we'd just read right past. Okay, so Peter stands up. There's 120, great. And he's talking about Judas, and they make a decision. We're getting something profound here in the earliest disciples, their view of the Word, their submission to the Word. They're yielding to the authority of God, to the inspired Word of God. This is encouraging and also convicting as we read this. Many of us wonder, okay, well, well how does, what is this, if it's applicable then and applicable now, well, how do we make decisions? I mean, we know in the Scriptures, for example, we know in the Scriptures that we're supposed to love our spouse. We know how, how we're supposed to, to fight for their purity, as Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, but it doesn't tell us who to marry, does it? There's no name. My wife's name was not in here as far as I could find, but there are infinite infinite, endless characteristics and attributes that we're taught and told to pursue in a spouse, in a godly spouse, in someone that we're to, to love and to marry and, and to be united with. So there's, there is wisdom to be had here. It's not irrelevant to our lives. It's, it's 100% pertinent and relevant 
to our lives. We know that the, the Scriptures tell us that whatever we do, we're to do to the glory of God heartily. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. But the Scriptures don't tell us what job to take or what major to choose or what career path to pursue. It doesn't say astrophysics, that's what you should be, an astrophysician. Is that the right word? I don't think that's right. An astrophysicist. We have mics and we have people. They all mess up. No, it doesn't tell us what job, what career, what major to choose. But what does Psalm 139 teach us? Psalm 139 says that we are knit together in our mother's womb. Knit, fashioned, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That knitting, that fashioning means that I have been given gifts, strengths, abilities, and desires by God. But those gifts, strengths, abilities, and desires could easily be tainted and warped and bent towards sin. We're told that throughout Scripture. So I have to bring those gifts, strengths, desires, and abilities under authority and in submission to Him. Well, it also tells us in Acts chapter 17 that He appoints the times, places, and boundaries of every man and woman. Well, if He has given me gifts, strengths, abilities, and desires, and He's also given me experiences throughout life, well, then how has He wired me? What gifts, strengths, abilities, and desires has He given me? And then what experiences has He given me because of the places and the times of these? Those all inform how and what I should pursue possibly in a job or career path. And then we know how to act within that context. So it's not irrelevant to our lives. It is 100% relevant. And then what about Matthew 28, 19 with our jobs? Matthew 28, 19 says that we should go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, if if that's the command to do that, and he's also given me gifts, strengths, abilities, and desires, and experiences that shape and inform the trajectory and maybe the career path I ought to pursue, and then I receive that wisdom in Matthew 28, 19, well, then the question becomes not which flavor of the month do I want, what job do I want. Instead, how can I make the most of the kingdom of God in whatever position I find myself in, whatever career? It changes the dynamic. So the word is not irrelevant for our lives. It is 100% relevant, both then and now. And what Peter is doing here is rooting their decisions in the word. And when he comes to the word, he is looking for Jesus. And I think that's why Peter could say something so bold as what he says in 2 Peter 1, verse 17. When he says there, Referencing the transfiguration of Jesus. When he and James and John were on the mountain, they saw Jesus transformed. They heard the audible voice of God. They saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus there speaking, hanging out. And Peter says, we have something better than that. What could possibly be better than seeing Jesus for all of he is and all of his glory and all of his revelation of who he is, hearing the very voice of God? What could possibly be better than that? Peter says, the sure and certain word of God. We have the revelation of God himself in Jesus Christ from page to page, from book to book, from front to back. This is his revelation of himself, of his love for us in Jesus Christ. And Peter says in 2 Peter, we would do well then to devote ourselves to it, to pay attention to it. And so what is Peter doing in this text? Remember, he was charged to to strengthen. When you return, strengthen the family. 
How is he strengthening the family? He's not simply strengthening the family with his own intellect and his own wisdom and his own common sense. He's strengthening the family with the word of God. He's going into the word to see Jesus and he's bringing Jesus from the word to the family. This is instructive for what he's doing here and for you and I and how we study the scriptures. He's telling them that, that the actions of Judas, the, the actions of the Jews in, sacri- in, in, in crucifying Jesus, the, the, all of this, the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus' death, Satan's plot, Jesus' accusers, not a single bit of it was a surprise to God. Not a single bit, not a single decision, not a single action was a surprise to God. It is all, he says, a fulfillment of Scripture. It's all a part of God's plan. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good, and he is meant for good from beginning till now in this text and till now. He is working and he's working and he's working, and we can see it in the text, we can see it in the text, we can see it in the text. So how is he strengthening the believers? He's strengthening them with Jesus and showing that none of this comes as a surprise. This is all part of God's plan and Jesus' power to bring about salvation and redemption to the hearts of men. This is how he's going to address in his greater sermon that's coming up in chapter 2. He's going to say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's will, God's desire. God put Jesus forward, and then he says, but you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's putting the two together. He's saying that though they crucified, it was part of God's plan. God was putting him forward. And why did God put, it, put Jesus forward? Peter says in his great sermon in chapter 2, to loosen the pangs of death, the, the, the bondage of death. What are the, what's the, the bondage of sin? The bondage, the grip of Satan on our hearts and on our lives. This is why Jesus was put forward. And that leads us to this last point in what Luke does here in the text. What's interesting is Luke presents the gospel to us. This is what Peter is is building on. He's he's pointing us to the good news of Jesus Christ. But Luke takes, takes to insert... This aside in verse 18 and 19, you see it's in parentheses. This, this, is, this is Luke's words in the context of Peter's standing up to speak. And it's easy to miss this contrast, this subtle comparison that's happening here with, with what Luke is doing. But when we look at the disciples, what do we see? We see men and women yielded to the authority of Jesus acknowledging that Jesus is king, yielded to him and his authority, united together as a family, united together in prayer, asking for God's wisdom, seeking it in God's word, waiting on the Spirit to lead. How many more characteristics and and ingredients do you need to show a transformed, gospel-centered community? That's what they're doing here. And they're doing all of this, and what does it lead to? What's going to happen in chapter 2? Spoiler alert. The Holy Spirit is going to descend, and they are going to be filled. Filled. That's the language. He's poured out. 
The Holy Spirit's poured out, and they are filled. So, in other words, obedience to God, submission to God, submission to the authority of Christ, yielding to His will in our lives, waiting on the Spirit to lead, unifying together in the community of faith, praying together, seeking God, seeking His wisdom, seeking His faith, seeking Jesus, leads to life and fullness. We think life and fullness is found outside of, apart from the will of God. I'll launch out on my own. I'll, I know what's best for me. I know what's good for me. I know, I'll just follow my heart. That's the wisdom of the day. I'll follow my heart. I'll follow my gut. I'll follow my desires. That's not what they're doing. They're yielding all of that to Jesus, and they're finding fullness in life. And what, is, what are they contrasted with? What does Luke contrast them with? He contrasts them with Judas, who launched out on his own, who betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus, was only concerned with what's in it for himself. And what does it lead to? It leads to death. But again, the word is so beautiful. If we just gloss over these verses, we miss the beauty of what Luke is telling us here in this text. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, that's the other account of Judas's betrayal and then ultimately death in this field. And, and there are some contrasts there. Scholars say instead of looking at the contrast, look at what's similar and see the contrast as providing extra nuance to help us even have a better understanding of what happened to Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He was paid a wage for his decisions. And Luke includes that. Now this man bought a field with a reward for his wickedness, the wages of his unrighteousness, the wages of his sin he used to purchase a field. And both Matthew and Luke and, God, and Luke and, and Acts both say that he used the, the money, the chief priest used the money in Matthew, to buy a field, and Matthew gives us further details on that field. That field was called the field of blood, which Luke says. It's called the field of blood, and Matthew says in Matthew 27 that it was the field of blood. It became a cemetery for those who were strangers or foreigners to God's ways. So, Following in the footsteps of Judas leads to death, death in a field, death in a field of death, death in a field of death for those who are strangers to God's ways. How many more ways, how many more times can you say, can you emphasize death is the result of betraying Jesus, of, of wandering from Jesus? And here's what's fascinating. In Matthew 26, when, when Matthew recounts Judas's words, to the chief priests. Jesus is there, and well, not in this scene, but, but Judas is there, and, and, and Judas asks, what will you give me, he says, that's the word he uses, give me if I deliver him over to you. The Greek word is, is didomai. It, it literally means, what will you transfer to my account for giving you Jesus? What will you credit to me? What will you transfer to me for giving you Jesus? Judas was not concerned with the gift that Jesus could transfer to him, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of justification. He was not concerned with what Jesus, the treasure of heaven, could credit to him. He was concerned with only what he could get in this moment. And he, the ultimate result is he's paid 30 silver coins, and he traded Jesus, 
the treasure of heaven for dirt. You say, I thought he got 30 silver coins. What were those coins used for? Dirt. A field. But not any field. A field, a cemetery for the strangers of God. Luke is contrasting these two ways. Why on earth does Luke provide this aside? We have to ask that. Why does he provide these details? Why does he go this, this whole route of giving us the details about a field and it's named the field of blood? Why a whole verse on the wages of, of Judas's wickedness and unrighteousness? Because Luke is presenting the gospel. He's presenting us two ways of living. If there's, a, there's one reason he's giving this detail, because the context is largely Gentile audience don't know these details, and so he's providing for them details they may not know about Judas. But at the same time, he has in this account, Peter stands up, says we must replace Judas. If you haven't heard these details, you're going to raise your hand. Why did they need to replace Judas? And Luke provides the answer. Because he forfeited Jesus, because he betrayed Jesus, because he denied Jesus, and it led to death. He, it led to emptiness. Literally in the text, it says that he burst open and his bowels emptied out. Why the gore? Why the detail? Because it led to emptiness. His body was emptied of life. It was not filled with life. But clinging to Jesus leads to life and fullness. This is what's so remarkable. We know, if, as we read ahead, what happens in the very next... There's a scene here where they actually make the decision to replace Judas. They choose Matthias. And then the very next scene is the Holy Spirit is poured out. And they're filled up. That was told long ago in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 32, verse 15. It makes the promise that long before this scene, People are lamenting the fact that all is desolate, all is dark, all is empty. The land is desolate. And why are they desolate? Why is it desolate? Because the enemies of God, Assyria, has come and devastated the people of God. And God speaks through his prophet and says, It will be this way until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. When the Spirit descends and fills up one of the followers of Christ, the desolate field is turned into a fruit-filled, fruitful forest. Do you see the two ways are being presented here? One way, pursuing self and self-glory leading to death. The other is yielding to God, yielding to Jesus, clinging to Jesus, and being filled up and filled with life. Remember, in the beginning, there was a garden. And what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled against God, thinking they knew what was best, lifting their fists to God. And the result was death. The garden was turned to death. But what does Jesus offer? What is he offering throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament? He's offering to turn the desolate field into life. He's offering to to bring life where there was barrenness and darkness and death. And how does he do it? How does he do it? He does it by dying on a tree for you and I. By suffering death for you and I. By paying the wages of our sin. Judas died for himself, but Jesus dies for us. 
And in this text, we're seeing these two different ways. And, and no wonder the disciples don't want to take a step apart from Jesus. No wonder they don't want to take a step ahead of Jesus. He's their king. And he, as king, laid down his life for them. And so they want to follow him with all of their heart. They want to yield to him with all of their will. They want to give him all, everything, sift everything through his will and his, his word. Is this you and I? Is this our heart? They don't want to be the enemies of God like Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. They want to bow before Jesus and give him all the honor and all the glory. Will we? Will we bow before him? Will we be humbled by his blood shed for us and his body broken for us? Will we yield our wills and our freedom to his loving leadership in every sphere of life? What a remarkable text that would just be another throwaway text if we just glance right over it. There's so much wisdom and instruction for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Despite technical difficulties that is still proclaimed with or without a microphone. We thank you so much, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal these details for us so that we can learn and how to live and walk before God. We have something greater. We have the, the word. We have community. We have, we have the, the community of faith and, and believers. And we have prayer. And we, we have the word that we can study. And we have you residing within us, giving us leadership and guidance, nudging us along, convicting us of sin. How much more should we stand convicted when we do not rely on you, do not keep in step with you, do not look to your word? Challenge us, convict us, and then encourage us and build us up with hope. Lord, as we turn to the table and remember your blood shed for us and your body broken for us, may we remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf dying on a tree being cursed on our behalf so that we would not have to be. May it melt us and move us to worship and bow before you. Give our lives and yield to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.